Writer's Block TV Talk, proudly presented by Mr. Miyagi's Little Trees, meeting all of the Valley's bonsai needs since 1989. Mr. Miyagi's Little Trees. I am Rylan Grant, screenwriter, Ringo Award-winning creator of fine comics like Aberrant, Banjax, and now Suicide Jockeys. The other voice in the dark, the man in the box to the left is... Uh, David Avalone, uh, comic book writer, film guy, and... Uh daytime drinker love it love it love it if you missed any of our previous conversations uh episodes featuring comic luminaries like david f walker matt fraction stan sakai kevin eastman cecil castellucci and many many more our entire catalog can be celebrated via youtube itunes spotify and other purveyors of worthwhile ear cracks so double on back and check it all out um great show uh uh today avaloni but we have a couple of books to pimp why don't we get that out of the way before we uh, can very quickly uh next month in august early i think august 4th uh i have the first issue of elvira meets vincent price coming out um as uh roger corman once said about exploitation films uh they sell themselves on the basis of the title and i think elvira meets vincent price is the kind of thing of if you're interested in that you are interested in that if you are not interested in that you are not interested in that. <laughs> but uh check it out it's good clean wholesome american fun and Ryland? Love it. Uh, my um, my new comic book, a tokusatsu joint titled Suicide Jockeys, uh, is available for pre-order now uh, via SourcePoint Press. Um, you have about a month left to uh, order issue one. Um, uh, just in a nutshell, uh, Voltron meets Fast and the Furious. Madcap hijinks uh, kind of embraces the tone of those uh, brilliant 90s action movies like Face Off, Con Air, The Rock, um, Armageddon. Um, it's a wild ride. I had tons of fun doing it. Uh, you're going to love it. It's called Suicide Jockeys. Get down to your, uh, your local comic shop and put an order in, but, uh, let's bring the guests on. We're talking too much. First we have Susan and Jose. Howdy, howdy. Hello. Hi. We're supposed to be yelling like this to introduce ourselves to the audience. Right? It's good. <laughs> Very high Hi. energy. Jose. Uh, Jose, tell us a little bit about yourself. A little bit about myself. Give me a clock. Give me a countdown. Um, <laughs> I, uh, my name is Jose Molina. I was born and raised in Puerto Rico. I came to L.A. because I wanted to write for television and movies, and I do the uh, former. I write for TV. I've written on um, some shows that definitely you're nerdy, uh, audience has heard of, including Firefly and Agent Carter and uh, The Tick, uh, are some of the uh, some of my favorites that I've done in my career. Um, and uh, you know, now I am trying to get my own shows on the air, and um, uh, and you know, working the the job to pay the bills and living the dream. Excellent, and Susan. Wow. Wow. Hi, I'm Susan Hurwitz Arneson. Lots of names. Uh, I also am a TV writer who is venturing into features in the not too distant future. Um, yes, it's not signed yet. Um, but yeah, I'm a TV writer. Jose and I met on The Tick, which was fun. And then I've done uh, six years on South Park, uh, The Tick for two seasons, got to be in that last season of Preacher. So lots of nerdiness and a bunch of shows that I, you can look up that I'm not gonna talk about. 
that may or may not have had Reba McIntyre in them. Just saying. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. I loved her yeah. on the tick. Um, <laughs> that would have been great. Man, we could have used on the tick. That would have been funny. Yeah. Yeah. We're, Susan, you remember we, we uh, briefly tried to get Phil Collins on the tick? I do. <laughs> For his drumming abilities, For yeah. His drumming abilities to play a supervillain uh, named Genesis. No, no, the the the, the, the villain the villain of the season was a drummer, and Jackie Earl Haley, who played him, was a drummer. Right. And the gag season one is that he'd had some schmuck locked up in a basement for like twenty years, teaching him how to play the drums. Um, and uh, and that was going to be our meta joke that you haven't heard of Phil Collins for twenty years. Because the terror has him locked up in his basement teaching him how to play the drum. That's yeah. amazing. Who that's did you incredible. eventually get? I don't remember offhand. No, that's awful. No, uh, just a, I think it was just like a local actor out of New York. Yeah. We were okay. shooting. Yeah, yeah, we never got it. We didn't. Once we got Phil Collins, we were like, we couldn't get him. We were like, meh, it's okay. We'll just it's cast not somebody worth who's. Going after, not worth going after Ringo for that. No. We just got somebody who's good at yelling at Jackie. <laughs> Yeah. So I wanted to start by asking, because it's a, it's a, to me, it's an interesting question. Did you have a relationship with comic books before you adapted comic books into TV shows or was it something that completely came up as a TV writer? Okay. Oh, me. Oh yeah. yeah no, I totally, I, I, I absolutely had a, a relationship with comic books. Um, I'm a huge uh, bat nerd. Uh, Batman mm -hmm. has always been my thing. Have She's a Batman tattoo. Yep, yep. I would show you it, but I can't. I mean, I just would have to pull my leg up, and I'm just too lazy. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I had a huge growing up as a kid. Batman was always my thing. Um, so I was sort of in the DC universe as a kid, and that's what I loved. Um, and then, then they did the uh, Batman animated series, and that like fucking just cemented every bit of me sure. into Batman. Um, so that was my my big thing. So I wasn't a big jumper around. Like I didn't love the MCU. I didn't love you know until the movies and stuff. But yeah, I was a Batman was my gateway comic and hero. And it was the comics. It wasn't the TV show or the 1989 movie or anything like that. It was. Mm -hmm. It was the comics. It was the comics yeah. for sure. Yeah. Is that oh, yeah, yeah. is that is that Keaton Batman in the background that I'm seeing? It is between it's those a, stairs. A gift. Yes. Yes, it is. Nice. Uh, with the Jack Nicholson Joker, that was a gift from a really good friend of mine who's a, a comic nerd, uh, another writer named Simon Herbert. Uh, I think it was my birthday or Christmas last year or the year nice. before. Love yeah. It. Very nice. Hanging and out Jose, back there. Jose, what was your relationship to comics before doing, I guess Agent Carter would have been the first comic book property you worked on? Uh, yeah, I mean, that was directly adapted from, from comics. I, I was definitely, you know, like Dark Angel is essentially a comic book show, you right. know, based on, on a comic. So I was definitely a comic book fan. Um, but my relationship with comics started much later than, than I assume Susan's because growing up in Puerto Rico, there were no like comic book stores. Uh, like I would, my, relationship with comics growing up was you could go to the drugstore and they would have the like the carousel of comics which meant one week you'd get an archie and one week you'd get a spider-man and and you took what you got and you know this is back in the day where you had 
the Charles Atlas uh, uh, advertisement in the back of the comic, literally uh, the 98 pound weakling shit. Um, so growing up, um, you had to seek them out really intensely. And the only one, the only comic that I uh, actually, I, I was able to get a subscription to was G.I. Joe. Um, <laughs> I was a big fan of the animated G.I. Joe series. And somewhere, somehow, I found an address and I got a subscription to, to the G.I. Joe uh, comic, which which came once a month. And then once I moved to the States, to the mainland, um, I was definitely able to, to get my hands on more comics and, sure. and, and I became m- more of a dabbler. I like, I, I'm not a guy who, who has a pull list, who's going to go to the comic book store every week and, and, and read X number of comics. But like friends tell me this is great. I'll go, I'll grab it. I'll read it. That's, that's sort of how I, how I roll with comics. I've been that way off and on for years. Now, since I started being a, a professional comic book writer, I've been a little more committed and, you know, I have a pull list, but for the longest time, it was that thing of like, Oh, you should read this. It's great. And that would be the thing I would pick up. And like you, I mean, it's funny. I'm, I think I'm a little older. I'm pre comic book stores existing as a thing in the United yeah. States. And you went to the candy store, which was also the drug store, which was also a diner half the time. And yeah, you, there's a reason there were no serialized comics in the seventies and it was all, pretty standalone and maybe superman would deal with the same problem for two or three issues in a row but they knew your local 7-eleven wasn't necessarily you yeah. know putting out a solid run of continuity. what yeah. year would you guys say like comic book shops came into their own like as we know them now for me it's early 80s very late 70s you know um, oh, we can't ryland, hear you ryan ryland you're uh yeah, that's fine. Um, th- th- there was a huge push in the early 90s. I mean, two things happened right around the same time that, you know, because comic shops have been established, but re- what really sent them into the stratosphere was two things. One, there was the image revolution, right? Um, and, you know, there was this kind of new kind of comics. People started to explore, to explore what you could do in comics and what comics could mean and what you could say with them and and and, you know, non-superhero stories and stuff like that but then at the same time like the most like you know establishment superhero thing was happening the death of superman and for me um you know i i i'm a little bit younger than than avalone um for me it was uh, like a lot of rubes it was the death of superman that got me into a comic shop you know it was like everybody was talking about it it was on the news everybody had to have a a copy of that that you know bagged um I would have to look it up, but it was, it was, you know, it was early to early nineties, you know, I think early nineties. Yeah. yeah. And so that got me into a comic shop. Um, and you know, and, and I mean, there was a lot of garbage, uh, coming out around that time. Um, that was the, um, I mean, they were just like mass printing this stuff because people were gobbling it up and, you know, anything they, they threw a foil cover on was selling like crazy. And so, you know, they're, 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 they're just, you know anything they could do to get a collector to buy it, and people were buying this stuff. They weren't even reading it. It was like a baseball. That's card the, that's that is the other thing that affects that yeah. boom the col- the collector market. The you yeah. know a bunch of Wall Street idiots see Action Comics going for half a million dollars, a million dollars, and they think that anything will be like that, including Spider Man number one with a cover by Todd McFarlane that they print literally 
a hundred million copies of, <laughs> and they're like, oh, this is going to be very. It is. Uh, it's literally got yeah. the value of toilet paper. Yeah. They printed that yeah. much of it. And so that happened. And so that got a lot of people into comic shops. Uh, most of them left afterwards when the bottom fell out of the market, you know, almost a few months later, um, uh, when they realized these things weren't going to be worth millions of dollars. Um, but um, there there were a few and people like me that, OK, well, that got us in the door. But then for me, it was uh, it was great comic shop owners that kind of introduced me to other stuff that was going on. And you did have the Im image revolution going on around then. Uh, it was around that time uh, and, and shortly after that Vertigo really became a thing. And, and Vertigo was, it was, uh, you know, it was almost kind of mm -hmm. like the Sundance of comic books at that point where it was, it was really unique, interesting uh, voices that were exploring worlds you'd never seen uh, uh, in the comic realm. And it was darker and it was more psychological uh, and it was, you know, um, dealing with uh, a real deal social elements in a meaningful way. Um, and, and so it was, it was a comic shop owner being like, Hey, you don't want this, like, come look at this stuff. And I was and my mind was blown. It's like, my Oh my first God. Memory, my first yeah. memory of, of that kind of thing was like in the months leading up to the Burton Batman in 89. Um, I remember like guys at school or like I was a camp counselor, uh, and there was this other counselor who was a giant nerd who always had a, a Batman shirt on, um, and sort of people walking around and showing the like the Frank Miller stuff that that didn't yeah. look like Archie comics, you know, it looked like real art and real, you know, a, a bound uh, comic that was, you know, a, a graphic novel, which was kind of a new thing for me at least in the late '80s. That that was the first time that I remember going, "Oh shit, th there's more to this than than I than my GI Joe subscription." Yeah, yeah I, that, 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 that that Burton Batman movie was really important to me. I mean, I, I was very young back then, but that might have even been the first comic book I ever bought. I was uh, was, was the Marvel kid. adaptation. Well, well, uh, well yeah, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I was you know we, we've talked about this before. Like you know you you you, you you've lamented uh, uh, over and over again on this podcast about you know why isn't Marvel selling you comics right when you walk out of the theater because they should be. It's and, so crazy. Yeah. It's insane, and I remember in 1989 going to the Star Theater on John R. Like you know, in in Detroit, and and uh, uh, you know, going past the ticket counter, going to the, um, the the refreshment stand, and I'm buying popcorn and Junior Mints, and I look down, and there is a uh, yeah, a a graphic novel adaptation of the movie I'm about to see sitting right next to the Junior Mints. I'm like, I need one of those, and I literally like. <laughs> you know, literally kind of like threw a fit in the theater until my mom bought it for me. And that was like the first, you know, and, and, yeah. and it's like, you're saying you open it up and it's like, wow, look at this. Like that came from this and what else, you know, and apparently there are thousands of these things. Like, how do I get more of these? You know? Yeah. Yeah. I read comics. I mean, starting in the seventies in the drugstore, candy store version of things. And it's funny how many storylines I read and I have no idea. I, I have no idea how Iron Man defeated Titanium Man. I read the one issue where he started the fight with Titanium Man. I have never read the issue that followed because I can never find it. I mean, I could find it now very easily, I'm sure. But that was sort of the format. And then in the late 70s, I think early 80s, you had comic book stores, which was the actual niche store where you had your pull list. And, you know, again, the, all of the Alan Moore takes Swamp Thing into an R-rated direction and they need yeah. to create Vertigo Comics to give him a place to give all of that a place to go. And of course that leads directly to Preacher and your job for a year 
because uh, that was one of the big Vertigo comics, if memory. Yep. Yeah. Yep, yep. And that, but how did the, how did you, I'll start with Susan, how did you get roped into the tech? How did that job come about? Uh, it's, it's actually, uh, I, I met on a different show that I won't talk about. And I had one of the worst meetings I've ever had in my fucking life. Like just the showrunner was like, you could tell he just, somebody had pulled a string or whatever to get me in and, or had said something and he took the meeting and clearly did wanted nothing to do with me for the show. And I went through the meeting trying to like, I'm gonna get the job and like walked out of it and called my agent and said, that was just painful. And I walked home and then I got a call because uh, it was uh, right by me. And uh, I walked home and I got a call a few minutes later and it was one of the other agents from my old agency saying, hey, like, have you ever heard of the tick? And my head almost exploded because I was a huge, I had the comic and then the animated show. And, you know, I'd watched some of the Patrick Warburton one. Um, and I wasn't as huge of a fan of that as I think a lot of fans of the tick were, but like the animated was one of my favorite shows. Um, on Fox. And so, yeah, I was like, gimme, 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 gimme. And, and got lucky and got the meetings and um, just was able to do what it took to say, please give me this job <laughs> to, to Ben Edlund and um, ended up on the tick. It, it was really a, it was just one of those things where from like a really horrible day to a, a, like a dream job coming to say like, it's good you didn't get that other thing because here's this thing you're supposed to be on. Right. You had, you great. had never done like single, ca single camera. Uh, no. Superhero no. type stuff. You'd done South mm -mm. Park and sitcoms, right? Yep, yep, yep. I'd been in the, the hell that is multicams and then animation. And so, you know, I really wanted to, I wanted to get away from very strongly, actually I wanted to move more towards one hour and I had made a conscious decision after being on a show called Border Town, which was a Seth MacFarlane produced animated uh, for a season that was incredibly gag driven. Um, and um, did not, it just was a really hard, I mean, there was a lot of great, I met some great people on it and learned a lot. And the main thing I learned was like, I don't wanna be on gag driven shows, I need to be on things where character and story actually matter, things that have heart. Um, and so I was looking for the right show and The Tick was sort of that gateway show that got me out of sitcom land and more towards one hour dramedy land because Tick, even though it was a half hour, it wrote very much like an hour I felt. Um, yeah. So yeah, it was, my first, it was my first foray towards where I wanted to go to sort of turn my career away from straight comedy into sure. things that that had actual stories and look at you now <laughs> look at me now well and i you know i always think yeah i'm not a big three camera sitcom fan at all i think it's a a lot of the laziest writing in the world is how to get to that quick gag 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 at the expense of, at the expense of the characters making any sort of internal logical sense or being uh acceptable human beings that you would want to spend any amount of time with uh yeah, yeah, you know sorry. most sitcoms i watch i'm like i don't want to spend 22 minutes with these people so why would i watch this <laughs> like i would walk yeah. away from the, i would walk away from these people at a party why would i keep listening why should i keep listening to them in my living room have you and guys it's a different skill set as a writer 
for sure. Yeah. Sorry, Jose. Have you guys it's, seen any of Kevin Can Fuck Himself yet? Yes. I've been I watching just started it watching it yesterday. Yeah. It's such it's, a great it's like refrigerating, right? It's like the it's the it's the TV wife version of fridging a woman in a comic, is that she's always been this housewife, hot housewife to the like right. the man child douchebag guy. Yeah. yeah. And you never actually see him in her real world. He only exists in the three camera overlit rooms. The minute she right. walks out of the room or the minute he walks out of a room, it becomes realistic. It's a very, I, I have to say, I don't share the showrunner's enthusiasm for the sitcom parts of the show. Right. Sort of, sort of like WandaVision. I'm like, this is funny, but you're starting to try my patience with the pastiche. Yeah. And I want to just, I want to reach the breaking point of this show where we break out of it. And I don't know that they're ever going to, as much as I love the show, I don't know that they're ever going to break out of the sitcom parody, which I find painful. Just as painful yes. to watch as an episode of King of Queens would be. The the yeah. concept to me is so brilliant and so like it really is so incisive. Like we all know that the women on you know for for the entire nineties, random schmucky uh, stand up guys were getting were were getting cast opposite uh, unlikely beautiful uh, yeah. wives in their own sitcoms because they were, you know, from Ray Romano, who I think is incredibly funny to Tim Allen to take your pick. And nothing has changed in fucking 30 years. And, yeah. and it's so sexist and so offensive the way that these things are constructed to to enable and humor the shitty Kevin James kind of a guy, so yeah, uh, I, I think it's uh, I, I I do do share some of the frustrations about the sort of back and forth of the two worlds, but but I just love the idea, and I think um, Annie Murphy is fantastic in it. Yeah, she's amazing. I mean, she's an amazing talent, and it's it's great. I was curious as to her character on Schitt's Creek is such a specific thing. Uh, though after you know the she thing does that this, she does this a lot on Shit's Creek, I've you, noticed. But do you know, do you know what? what the, do you know what that is? Yeah, the, I don't know if what is Jose that? and I have the same theory about this. It's not a theory. I heard her talk oh. about it, which oh, is, is it? Uh, that she Very was doing research. She noticed that the Kardashian girls were always doing oh, this. And no, they the don't. Oh, blah, blah. And That's so funny. she decided, wouldn't it be hilarious to do the same thing just without the purse? Interesting, That's hilarious, and it, it, but I'm, I do. I notice it a lot. I call it bunny hands that she does the. The other thing, yeah, no, I, I've only watched the first episode of the of Kevin can fuck himself, and and uh, she's pretty great in that. She is the the other aspect of that performance on Shit's Creek, though. Just as a complete aside, is I think she's imitating Dan Levy. It's the younger yeah. sister imitating her older brother, and of course, it drives him crazy. He doesn't right. even know what about it drives him crazy, but he's looking in a funhouse mirror where he's a hot chick and he can't <laughs> stand hearing his own vocal intonations and his own manner of speech and his own narcissism and his own selfishness just reflected right back at him. Yeah. And it drives him nuts. It took me a couple of seasons and I went, oh, she's literally just doing an impression of Dan Levy most of the time on this show. And that's the genius of it. But anyway, it was a, it was a terrific show. Uh, Jose, you how what how did you get involved with Agent Carter? What was your what was your into that? Uh, with Carter or the Tick? With the with Carter. Let's start with Agent Carter. 
Uh, Carter was one of those where I, I was looking for a gig. I was coming off a really shitty gig. Um, and, um, Michelle Fasik is Notice a theme. Notice a theme with the, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> comic, books saved, comic books saved our souls. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, uh, and, uh, Michelle is and Tara Butters, I knew because we had spent, uh, three years working together on S- on Law and Order SVU, uh, which is a show that is kind of a funny show for for all three of us because we are all three very nerdy kind of people. Uh, so, like ten o'clock cop show is not exactly our where our heart is. But they were there for five years anyway. Uh, we were friends, and what, when they got Reaper on the air they reached out and they were like, do you want to come work for us on Reaper? And I was like, I would fucking kill to go work for you guys on Reaper, but I just re-upped without a trace, which is where I was at the time they got picked up. So years go by and then Agent Carter comes around and I had met with them on another show that didn't, on another pilot that didn't go. Agent Carter comes around. I'm like coming off of this really bad gig that I got fired from. I'm like, I need this job. I have to get this job. And I go into the meeting and because we're friends, I spend 70% of my meeting bitching and moaning about the shitty job that I had just come off of and going, you guys aren't going to believe the shit that they pulled. They took money out of my pocket. They did this, they did that. Um, And I leave and, you know, and they're commiserating and they're sharing stories and back and forth. And we're just essentially hanging. Uh, and we talk about the show for like 10 minutes and I leave the meeting and I'm like, what a fucking idiot I am. I needed to go in there and not use my interview as a therapy session. I needed to go in there and, and tell them, finally, we can work together. We've both been wanting this to happen for a long time, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and I would be great on the show and I can help the show and blah, blah, blah. I did none of that. So I sent them an email and I was like, guys, I'm sorry that I spent the whole hour Kvetching about uh, the the shitty gig, and th- and then on paper I was like, this is how I think I can help the show. This is you know why I think um, you guys should should really consider me. It was pretty competitive, um, and it was I don't know if it was entirely up to Michelle and Tara because Chris uh, Marcus and Steve McFeely had created the show, and of course there was the big Marvel machine on top of that. Um, so I made my my best pitch for myself, and they basically responded, going like, "Shut up, we know, we we, we got we get it." Um, and then it was, I think, I think a week waiting for uh, a response, and it was a long week that I annoyed the hell out of my agents because I was like, "Please let me get this gig, please let me get this gig," and eventually the call came, and I got nice. And had you? Had you ever encountered Agent Carter in the comic books at all? Because, like, you know, I love her in the movie. Though I love Haley Atwell. I, I remember her. Her uh, is it niece uh, Sharon? Yeah, yeah. I read Sharon Carter in Captain America comics. I don't remember ever reading uh, Peggy in the comics. She's. I hadn't encountered her, encountered her either. She is there, but if you blink, you miss it. Right. So they really just kind of took. Uh, a character that was a cipher for the movie uh, and turned her into, you know, the love interest who was also 
uh, a former Bletchley uh, analyst and uh, and a badass with a gun. And then, you know, the most brilliant thing they ever did was they cast Haley Atwell. Um, mm, yeah. That that role in Lesser Hands is is nothing but a love interest and and you, is completely forgettable. But Haley is so magnetic that I remember seeing her. I remember the movie, the cat first cat movie, first Avenger was on my radar. Um, and I was curious about it, but you know, the MCU was still really young at that point. And I think Thor had come out and I hadn't loved Thor. Um, and, um, and I was watching the late, late show with Craig Ferguson and Haley came on as a guest. Mm-hmm. And I was like, whatever this girl is in, I have to watch. Yeah. So, uh, I fell in love with Haley and just her persona, her personality before I even saw the movie. And then it was kind of a no brainer, I think for them to, to see that they had this great asset. Um, and they kept using her in all the MCU movies. Yeah. As much as they possibly could. Yeah. Yeah. No, she's, she isn't, she is instant movie star when she walks on screen in, uh, the first Captain America movie, it's, you know, it is one of those moments like seeing, you know, Audrey Hepburn for the first time where you're right. like, well, that's a compelling human being, whoever the hell she is. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, was any, what was the Marvel oversight on the show like? Did you hear from them a lot? Did you hear from them not much? What was the, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to hear what's happening now with Marvel versus what was happening specifically with us then. Um, Back in 2014-15, Jeff Loeb was still the head of TV uh, at Marvel, um, and he oversaw everything from Daredevil, Jessica Jones, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., all of that stuff. Um, but we were kind of the love child of Marcus and McFeely uh, with Kevin Feige and Louis D'Esposito. So we were developed by the feature division, not the TV right. division. So we responded. We we didn't have as much oversight by Jeff and his team. We had more of the oversight of um, of uh, of Kevin and Lou, um, and we always had an executive in the room. We had Wendy Wilming um, and um, uh, and Eric Carroll, um, and who who is still there producing Spider Man movies, uh, and Megan. Uh, oh God, I'm gonna blank on Megan's last name. Um, Bradner, um, who who were in and out and were always sort of there, but they were there to help. They weren't there to to control the story or to act as bosses or showrunners, which is you know a little bit of what's happening now uh, in 2021. Um, they were there to make sure that we didn't hit a third rail and that you know that we weren't uh, dealing with. Um, facets of the MCU that they were going to be exploring in another movie or that if we needed resources, uh, comic uh, resources, any kind of help, we could have it. Right. So for our, and, and it was a unique situation because again, even back then there was different, there were different dynamics going on on the Netflix shows and on agents of shield, which I'm not quite privy to. Um, but I, I know that they really left us alone and that was not, and is not the, uh, the, the norm for Marvel with their TV shows. 
it probably definitely helped that you were set in an era that the movies weren't ever going to go back to really, you know, where you kind of like, you know, it wasn't like one of you was going to pitch. So in episode four, Sharon Carter kills Thanos. It's going to be right. great. It's like, no, we're not doing that on Aiden, on, on your show. Yeah. Um, if anything, we could set up things that yeah. had been paid off and, and made it look like it was all seamlessly of a piece. Right. Right. And that leads to me to ask to uh, Susan, how much was uh, Garth involved in Preacher? Um, like, by the was... time I got there, not not really involved. Um, mm -hmm. I think that he, the first season, I know that um, Seth and Evan were, you know, in the room the first season for a little bit, and I know that uh, I think Garth has come had come and gone not staying in the room for very long, but really being a part of it. And um, by the final season, which was the season that I got there, um, I, he really, I don't believe was, was involved very much at all. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, one of the things yeah. I like about that third season, and maybe this is just me having a memory problem, not something that's real, but it seemed like you started out very much in the direction of the comics in the first season. And by the third season, it was following the logic of the TV show and forgetting the comic books pretty thoroughly. Unless yeah. that stuff happened in the comics and I just put it yeah, out Yeah, no, mind. I mean, if you've ever read all the comics and, and I was on the fourth season, but right. the third season played on a part that was really popular with the fans of the comic right. series. And if you ever read the comics themselves, and I like, before I, I took the job, I went back, I had started reading them in the 90s and they were just so like 90s guy. And Tulip was like, <laughs> Tulip was like, they were constantly drugging her and leaving her at fucking motels. And yeah, that character was a huge uh, improvement over the comics. Uh, yeah, she was like this total, like, yeah, she was still good with the gun, but she was sort of like slutty. Like it was just, ugh. And so in the 90s, I was like, this is not my shit. I'm clearly not male enough for this. And so I came back to read them all. Um, when uh, I got the job and, or uh, it was a very long haul till I found out a long, it felt long to me till I got the job. So I read all the comics again. And so there's, you know, when you go back and you read them now, you're like, all oh, these things that are hugely popular with the fans, like grandma and all of that, like they're in the comic, but they're like, they're these tiny, like they're just these tiny little stories that are like, this happens, this happens, it's over. Right, and then the genius of Sam and what he created on that show was that he was he was able to be true and was such a great lesson for somebody who who adapts stuff. But like to be true to the fan base and never, you know, but also recognize that this has to be a television show. So you have to take things and and pay tribute to them, but then you have to go your own way yeah. and make it work for television. And and I think that Preacher did such a great job of of finding, I mean, my, my, one of my first days on the final season, we did two things. We, we decided, cause it, we, uh, going in, I didn't know it was gonna be the last season. They didn't know. And that was one of the decisions we made as a room right away. And I'm like, I'm finally on Preacher. And then the first conversation is like, we're thinking about this should be the end season. I'm like, come on. <laughs> and they said, uh, and so we went through the whole discussion and it became really clear very quickly that like once Jesse goes up against God, like how do you top that? Yeah. Like you can't, there's nowhere to go yeah. when you fight God. And so, and it was just obvious it had to be, it had to be the last season. And then once we had that conversation and, 
and Sam told Seth and Evan and the network that like, this is pretty much going to be the last season. So we dictated that as writers, Sam did in the room versus a network coming at us. And um, then it became, what have we not done from the comics that people are going to desperately want us to sort of at least try to touch on or, you know, tip our hats to. And the board became filled with a bunch of stuff. And we tried to, as organically as possible, mm-hmm. build it into um, that final season. So, um, you know, you, you get a bunch of characters that people loved from the comics that make an appearance in that season. And it sort of got woven into, you know, Jesse's final adventure with with coming at God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- so, I, mean, I, I think that's ultimately the best way to go. Slavish devotion gets you the Watchmen movie and uh I don't know right. that it's a great uh a, a great argument for just reproducing what's on the page. Um but well, yeah no, I mean, and, then I, you, and, and and then you take a look at the Watchmen TV series, you know, and 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 yeah. and, 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 and you know and, and that was born out of the Watchmen comics. It was a love letter to the the Watchmen comics and it and it 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 it, it reestablished the Watchmen comics as a now thing and dealt with social issues the way we deal with them now and not yeah. the way that they were dealt with. Well, I, then. I, um, I, it, it, it was progress and it was, yeah. it, and it was, it, it was everything that Watchmen should be now, you know, uh, uh, and, 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 you know, I felt like you guys were, were, were doing a similar thing with, with, with Preacher then kind of recontextualizing it. And, uh, and yeah, do, yeah, doing you have something to. amazing that was kind of inspired by it and, and, yeah. and taking it out of the, taking it out of the nineties, <clears throat> Boy club, uh, Garth. Ennis, yeah, I mean, casting casting was key, and 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 then you know writing Tulip as her own character with her own sort of sense of being. I mean, she still is very tied, obviously, in that love triangle with with um, with Cassidy. Jesse and Cassidy. So, but yeah, but casting Ruth uh, as that lead was a really was a such a fucking brilliant stroke. Uh, Absolutely. That, that, the Sam again. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's when you, I think when you work in comics and Jose can probably speak to this too, is you look at the source material and comics do tell great stories. And even when it's like a huge, like, I think pre, I mean, preacher, I've got like three, like these giant volumes of like just a shit ton of stuff. But when you really look at it, there's not a lot of like story there. There's stories like set up for stories and like beginning, middle and end. But like in terms of narrative story for television, they're very often the there's bones, there's pieces, um, and not that's not all comic books, but it 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 often is the case that it's you have to to deepen and slow and pull out and prune sure. and in order to make it something that that works for a more visual medium like you know television where you're going to be doing you know serialized storytelling like that. Well, it, well you know, I, 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 what's what's really funny about that is that I think that that has changed radically in comics recently because, you know, because TV is we've had this kind of golden age of television yeah. that's now now be, now we're even past that, but it's like people are so used to seeing a a 13 episode season and they I mean my if you look at my comic books the uh they all have um you know they all have seasons season numbers season 1 season yep. you know and um you know aberrant was uh i mean at, at, two weeks before uh issue 2 hit uh hit comic shops uh aberrant was uh was uh option for tv and uh and we started developing it and the reason that people ate it up so quickly was that yeah, everybody I met, they looked at it and they're like, this feels like a TV you know, season. 
it, it feels cinematic. It feels, uh, you know, and, and, and the way the story unfolds, if you read 10 issues, it feels like 10 episodes of a Netflix series. Um, That's great. And, and part of that is because, you know, I'm a, I'm a screenwriter, you know, TV writer too. When I was that first, you know, I, I'd written in Hollywood for 12 years before I started doing this. And so that was just what I brought to the, the game. However, a lot of it, again, is just like, these are the stories we consume. We are so used to right now just binging this stuff and, and seeing a complete story and, and character development over, over uh, you know, 10 episodes or 10 issues. And, and all of that is starting to filter its way uh, into comics, um, you know, whether whether it's it, whether we mean to or, or, or whether we don't. Interesting. Mean to it's just, it's yeah, interesting how like TV is like, give me, give me, give me, give me, <laughs> give me yeah. all the IP, give me all the IP. And the IP is like, give me, give me, give me TV. So it's sort <laughs> of like, it's interesting how it's, it's reciprocal. Yeah, there's sort, of a built in, there's sort of a built-in problem with comic books as in the, the open-ended monthly comic, just like the non-serialized TV show. You can't really end a story because right. it's got to keep going possibly forever. And I've had the situation where I've been contracted to write miniseries for comic books. And what has happened to me now the last five times, it's a good problem to have but the first issue sells well and i get the email saying so can there be a fifth issue and i'm like i've already written a fourth issue which has a very <laughs> definitive climax and i'm getting really good at writing epilogues now i'm very good at writing right. a fifth and by the time they want a sixth I issue because then that's the next step but they never want to commit to that right away i'm like okay i now have a six to ten arc that we will launch right. in six but just in case five is just five Here's an here's a standalone. Here's a bottle episode that will address one issue, wrap it up. But it's you know it's funny when Alan Moore wrote an introduction to Dark Knight Returns a million years ago. Uh, one of the things he said is the reason comic books and television, I think, can pre-serialization had the same problem. The stories don't feel like legends because there's no ending to them. We know how Robin Hood dies. We know how King Arthur dies. A big part of every legend is what finally happened to the hero or the heroine at the end of the road. And he said, the great thing about Dark Knight Returns is it jumps forward and says, whatever else we're ever going to say about Batman, this is how this story ended. This is how Batman right. stopped. This is how Batman died. This is how Batman stopped mm -hmm. being Batman. And uh, right. smarter people than me have pointed out that one of the big problems in Batman comics the last 40 years is that Frank Miller wrote a very specific 60-year-old, angry, bitter, defeated Bruce Wayne Batman. And then that became how everybody wrote the 30-year-old Batman as though they were the same guy. And it's like, no, he's not that guy yet. He's actually mm -hmm. still got hope. He's still got some and, optimism. And she even like- his Best friend, actually. You, know? you, look at, you look at Batman Begins, which borrows from uh, year one a little bit. Yeah. And yeah. it's like you're you're they miss for my money so much of what makes year one work because he is still that cynical guy who's gonna walk into a courtroom and shoot a guy rather mm -hmm. than be the guy who is gonna take Gotham City and put it on his shoulders and, and save it. Right. Um, you're it, I, I never thought of it that way, but that's a hundred percent you know what it is. No, and you even yeah, in, the, in the 1989 Batman, the even in that movie the influence on Sam Hamm 
of the Frank Miller comics. Like I've read that first draft. He has Batman on horseback. There's even more Dark Knight Returns in Sam Hamm's script than there is in the movie Tim Burton made. You know, I've also read Tim Burton's treatment, which is amazing and insane and even more of a Tim Burton movie. Ever you guys ever seen that? It yeah. literally is like his parents are shot because as they're coming out of Deflator Mouse, they go to the opera. <laughs> and his first Batman costume is a Deflator Mouse opera costume. Like that's what he's actually wearing fighting crime. That's so funny. Is a is a it sounds, is it sounds a little like Batman well from the tick comic. It's, it's a little sort bit of like wearing Batman almost well. that costume. Well, no, and wasn't, like, wasn't Batman well in the tick comic? I mean, in the in the 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 the, the, uh, the animated the, Pat, the, the Warburton one. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. I think he was in the others too. In the in the animated, he was Deflator Mouse. Yes, he was actually right. Deflator right, Mouse. Yes, there's Defl right, but then there's also like Batman Well in the live the other live action also yeah. had that feel too. Yeah. No, the evolution you're of right, that it was Deflator Mouse. Was the way Ben has kept that character as the best satire of whatever the present version of Batman is. You know, and even in the tick that you guys worked on, you got that character who was the modern gadget heavy psycho killer Batman, you know, uh, which is, you know, I, I've always appreciated the way Ben has constantly, and, and obviously you guys as well, constantly updated the tick to what are superhero comics doing right now? And what are superhero movies, TV shows doing right now? Yeah, I mean, over Overkill was definitely meant to be uh, a Punisher uh, yeah. on on the Punisher, but also on the super nihilistic uh, yeah. and that uh, that that comics have taken. You know, it, it can be. It was definitely there was a lot of the Punisher in there, but it's it's a little bit of the Nolan Batman. It's a little bit. Oh, yeah. of, of the Marvel because the Punisher is in gadget gadget dependent at all he's a guy with a machine gun and a ripped shirt like he's not there's no punisher boat punisher plane punisher you know all of that stuff so yes and well the, you know the, the danger boat thing. is its own is his own thing he chose to partner with right. so he's not really he's right just his, not his really partner. the bat boat yeah no no yeah. he's not a gadget he's his yeah. own self and chose to be yes yeah so and it's a did, little different. I mean, that's a really unique situation. I don't think, aside from when Javi was the showrunner of Middleman, I can't think of another situation where the comic creator ran the show on an adaptation of his own comic. You know, uh, I mean, unless there was someone else, you know, partnered with Ben as the showrunner running the writer's room. No, I mean he had a number. He had he had David Fury first season, who was sort of a partner runner. But but Ben had been writing for television for a while, and every yeah. iteration of the Tick, Ben Ben ran. I mean, so it's it always makes me laugh when fans are like, "This is not as good." And why did they? I'm like, "It's still bad." <laughs> it's yeah. Like, look at the credits because it's like it was Ben Edlin for the animated. It was Ben Edlin for the other live action. It's Ben Edlin for the Amazon Tick. Like it's all Ben and and. He created the tick when he was 17 years old and obviously he's over 50 now so it's like 
there's gonna be a change in this character as this person grows as a writer, as a human, as the world changes, as superheroes change. And there's so many fans that were just like, oh, well, this isn't what the tick should be. Why did they let, I'm like, it's still Ben, dum-dums. That is just, the, yeah, it's, it's like the guys on Twitter who are telling Neil Gaiman he doesn't understand the Sandman because of how they cast <laughs> the upcoming adaptation. Exactly. Pretty exactly. sure that's Neil's call, guys. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Neil gets to yeah. say uh, what is and yeah. is not Sandman. Makes me laugh. Like it's still Ben, people. It's still I mean, ben. we could we could talk about fan entitlement for, uh, oh, yeah. for a long, long time because it, you see it so markedly on almost every show that that is geeky that the fans yeah. are, the, the fans are all, always very very vocal and very angry and um you know i i remember seeing this most ver ver virulently is that how virulently. you pronounce it yeah virulently uh on uh, vampire diaries where really? you know if if the two characters weren't getting together that a particular set of people wanted to get together there would be fucking death threats we actually had to get warner brothers security involved at one point because the showrunner was getting death threats, and it's like, guys, this is not, this is this is not the show that you want it to be. This is the show that the creators are creating. You can watch it or don't watch it, right. um, but it, yeah. Yeah, that, we're not doing it wrong. We're doing it the way we intend to do it. Yeah, yeah. That's the that that is the irony of all that, and I always maintain. This is not a new thing. What's a new thing is the fans being able to get heard. Yep. Uh, yep. I yeah. always say so that has definitely changed. Every single thing that people hated about The Last Jedi, they also said about The Empire Strikes Back in 1980. But in 1980, those several hundred thousand people on Twitter boiled down to three letters to the editor in Starlog magazine, and that's all you heard of them. And maybe you might run <laughs> yeah. into one at a convention who was mad that Darth Vader was Luke's, and Obi-Wan Kenobi wouldn't lie. They killed Han Solo. It's only half a movie. Like, the, I remember how much that movie was hated vividly. Can, can I just now tell you this? Now it's an unassailable classic that's perfect beginning, middle, and end. But in 1980, it was not that. It was the movie that wasn't anything like Star Wars, and it was bad, <laughs> bad, and wrong, wrong, wrong. I gotta tell you the the stupidest little anecdote. Do we? How long are we going? Do we have time? No, we got another minutes? ten, twenty minutes, thirty minutes, depending. Um, so, so what the the great lost script that I never got to finish because the show got canceled was I was writing a Freaks and Geeks spec uh, back wow. in '99, um, and there was a freak story and a geek story, and the geek story was they went to opening night of uh, Empire Strikes Back. They stood in line, and you know we were. In 99, we were all familiar with standing in line all night to, to wait for Star Wars. So the story was basically the geeks camp out. Uh, and, and it's their travails as they're waiting to, to watch Empire. But of course, the coda of the whole story is Sam and Neil are like, oh my God, that was the most incredible, most amazing movie. And Bill Haverchuk is like, that sucked. That was terrible. <laughs> we don't know what they're doing. That's there's no there's no uh, Darth Vader isn't Luke's father. He's lying because I remember that being a huge thing at the time. It's like yeah. no, he's not. No, it to it it totally was a huge thing. 
And again, no one, no one, no one that when something becomes a classic, all that goes away. I remember when, but isn't, when isn't never say Vader never, German when never, for never again came up. What's that? Isn't is, Vader? Is, yeah, right? no, I know. There's there's plenty of evidence for like, it being set up in, <laughs> so in weird. When Never Say Never came again came out, which is not a great movie. There was a review <laughs> of it in Time magazine. I think it was Richard Corliss, where he said it was the it was amazing, it was a masterpiece, it was the best Bond movie since From Russia with Love. I was in college at the time. I went to the library periodical section. I went to 1964. I found the Richard Corliss review of From Russia with Love. So bad that it borders on self-parody. I guess in 20 years, he had decided that the movie everyone considers the best Bond movie was maybe not so bad. <laughs> and it's just that funny, like, he got talked out of that first opinion sometime over the, that 20 years, or he had just completely forgotten what his initial reaction was. And it is funny to watch that happen in the culture. I, I've been yeah. trying to pinpoint where, sort of when and where, like, I realized we were all in trouble with this shit, you know, with, with, with where Twitter was, I mean, you know, uh, you know what Twitter became and all this stuff. I was, I believe it was probably 2006, and I was briefly involved. I had a cup of coffee on this. Um, it was an adaptation of a Terry Brooks novel called uh, Shannara. Um, do you guys know this property? I mean, it's like Terry Brooks has sold more novels than yeah, you know, hobby worked Tolkien. on. Yeah, they made, it, they made it for MTV in the last few years. Yeah, they eventually made it for MTV, but this is it was going to be a film at Warner Brothers at this time. And, um, and uh, it had been brought to us and brought to Warner Brothers via another um, like halfway noteworthy um, uh, uh, fantasy writer who was, um, who was Brooks's protege. Um, and I, I, I won't mention his name because I don't want to, you know, I don't want to get too hard into it. Anyway, like the protege had written a script. The script was not great. And, and, but Warner Brothers bought the script, sort of paid him to go away. And then they were hiring us to come on and, and, and write this thing. And, um, and the geeks went berserk. Basically, this, this, this fantasy writer with this like minor following on Facebook. The, 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 this, this, this is like when everybody was getting a Facebook account. He goes to Facebook, he pops off, and then Facebook goes, goes, crazy quote unquote crazy for them and what crazy looked like back then was they created a facebook page called save shannara uh and i believe they got 70 to 80 people to to like the page join the page or whatever and they were popping off on this page and it was like i mean it was like a situation i mean like you know talking to people at warner brothers being oh what do we have to do about this let's let's diffuse this bomb this is this is going to be a catastrophe 70 people created a facebook page and we're popping off about this thing and like it, it was an international incident and and just cut to today uh you know uh, um with what's happening on facebook and what's happening on instagram and all these things and like the 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 texas size asteroid that that little meteorite has become um yeah. Yeah, thought about it. You know what I'm saying? But it was like, but, but but it was back then where I realized, wait a minute, like you know, I'm like I'm having calls with Warner Brothers legal every day about, about this. Like I think we might be in trouble with this stuff. Yeah, um, I, I when I was working on Red Sonia a few years ago, uh, you know, the rights holder is very careful about how she is portrayed and what the movie is going to be, and in one of the meetings, he referred to the fans, the fans of Red Sonia. And after he left the room, I said, look, 
I got a lot of respect for this property. I got a lot of respect for its history. And I do believe that we should honor the history of Red Sonia. But let me show you the comic book sales on the latest issue of Red Sonia. We're talking about 20,000 people tops. That's not even a rounding error on an opening weekend box office. Right. If 20,000 people attending or not attending the $250 million movie that Red Sonia will someday be makes or breaks us, we are screwed. Like if that's a significant <laughs> number of the opening box office, you already lost this battle. And most people in Hollywood have no idea how microscopic mm -hmm. the the, that the number of people who read a Batman comic couldn't open a Batman movie to save their lives, couldn't pay off a Batman movie's budget to save their lives. It's Even the a frustrating, it, it's the frustrating thing with the town's obsession with IP. Mm -hmm. uh, yep. They just want something that somebody somewhere has bought before. It doesn't matter yep. if it's like 500 people or like we were talking about Javi a minute ago, uh, Javier Grigio Marx watched a minute ago. Uh, who did the middleman? He did the middleman so that he could have IP, so that he could sell the show. Yeah, um, a great comic know, though. I will say, like it as a comic book, it's a fantastic comic book. A hundred percent. But it was basically, you know, him recognizing that executives are going to be more likely to greenlight something if there is an IP behind it. But the IP, I. Uh, and I've developed a bunch of IP over the years. Yeah. 95% of the IP that people come to you with has no, doesn't move the needle in the slightest. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. The, uh, I mean, the most famous one I think that benefited from that is Men in Black, which was a black and white comic that maybe a thousand people were reading. Right. From from a very small public, I don't even remember who the publisher was. Honestly, it was not big two. It was not even top six comic book publishers. But it was a comic book, and it was a good premise. Right. And well, that yeah. was enough to launch a giant, expensive franchise. There, there, there was this weird psychological sort of I don't know thing happening, right, with this stuff. Where I mean, obviously. I mean, we are in the age of IP, uh, you know, the original ideas have been marginalized that, that whole nine yards. But, um, you know, and in fact, I've talked, I've talked on the show before about how, I mean, basically when, when, when I started writing in Hollywood, like you wrote a script and if it was good, you, you, you took it out and you sold it. Right. That, that was just what happened. I did that for a couple of years and then the, the, um, the financial crisis happens right around the writer strike, uh, Hollywood completely remakes the way they do, uh, you know, they, they do business. They're making about a third as many films as they were making like yesterday. Um, independent uh, film movement dries up. It moves on to television, becomes something else. And then like you couldn't sell an original idea, you know, in Hollywood to save your life after that. And this coincides with, with the IP revolution, right? Um, it, everything has to be based on something, video game, comic book, uh, uh, whatever. And, and, and finally, I got wise. What saved me after a few lean years was being like, well, if they want IP, I'm going to give them IP, right? <laughs> um, why don't I just do that? And, and, uh, and um, so I took this idea that a few years you know, uh, before that, I just would have written as a spec and taken out. I knew I could never sell it like that. So I wrote it as a short story. We got the short story published. And then like overnight, we had a bidding war. We had Justin Lin on one side coming off of Fast Six. Uh, largest opening in Universal summer, summer history at that point, and we had Brett Ratner and Robert De Niro on the other side. And uh, you know, Tyler Perry made an offer. The whole nine yards. It was like a feeding frenzy for this thing. It was the same fucking idea, you know. 
um, but it was just because it was IP. And 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 so and so we're taking all these meetings on this. And 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 to make the long short, like you know, I did this six seven more times with uh, uh, with short stories. I, I I just sold a TV series, The Lionsgate, that is based on one of these short stories. Um, it became my business for like the next ten years. Um, but the, there's this psychological problem where even though they're in the business of development, producers and executives, if they, if you give them a script, they, for some reason, see it as set in stone, right? If they don't like 2% of that script, they're going to toss it over their shoulder. And, and, you know, just, they, they cannot, for some reason, even though they're in the business of development, see through, like, actually that this thing is malleable, that you can change this thing. Well, I don't like this one thing. Oh yeah, well, we can change that. Um, however... If you give them a short story or a comic book, for some reason they see it as like 100% valuable, right? They might they may like one idea uh, in that thing, and they will buy it and they will pay you to write it. Um, and it is this again, it is this weird psychological Rubik's cube that 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 you know uh, you know I've yet to solve, but 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 have, have I guess benefited from over the last 10 years. What I found on on that on that first story that that we made that big sale on was that as a writer, you are used to pitching your story, right? Um, we have this short story. Normally I would go in, I would say, hey guys, this is the movie, right? Um, uh, that was not an effective strategy in this case. What I had to do was walk in with the IP um, and I had to kind of, you know, you walk into a dozen big rooms and what you have to do is you kind of have to figure out what their movie is, what they see, you know, it, 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 in the IP, what they love about the IP, and then you have to pitch that to them. And of course, it, it ends up being some variation on, on your story, but you really have to embrace what they love about it, what they've, uh, uh, you know, sort of grabbed onto. And like, that was, that's what saved me in Hollywood. That's what extended my career for 10 years after that was, was, was doing this, was embracing this new way of thinking. Um, and I still don't fully understand it. I think it's bonkers. Uh, but that's where we're at right now, you know? Yep. Totally. Oh, and I th yeah, and you, for sure. You do see so many comics that are absolutely just somebody's recycled screenplay, and they're terrible comics, yeah. you know. And I do say that, you know, the uh, Javi is a great example because that's a great comic and it's a very comic book idea, you know. But because I straddle both worlds, I do get people reaching out to me saying, I have this pitch I can't sell. Should I make a comic book out of it? And I always say, only if you're going to be perfectly happy with it as a comic book. If you can love it as a comic book, but man, spending seven months of your life and a bunch of money on a leave yeah, on a brochure <laughs> on a brochure to bring into meetings, that's oof. That would hurt my soul if I had to do that and I was like not happy with it as a comic book. Right. You know? They're less expensive. You, that, you get that uh, question uh, from people yeah. who have zero interest in comic books. Yeah. You know, and see it just as a as a as a magazine with a bunch of storyboards in it. You know. So yeah, I mean, I think it's hard for when you know when you're right when you're a writer and and you have original ideas and and scripts and and all of that, and then you're being told yes, but there's this you know comic that sold a hundred copies and that idea is better than yours. Like it's yeah. just of course as a writer you're going to start you know doing what Ryland did and and start thinking well maybe if I come at it through the other way I'll have a chance of doing it. So it's you know it, I I think it's the just the focus on IP has it it. Not only the focus on IP, but the focus on remaking shit that they did 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 years ago versus, you know, trying to find, you know, because then there's these breakthrough shows, you know, there's like Ted Lasso or I mean, like on the silly side or Stranger Things, which is a love letter to stuff from the 80s. But it's like, 
they were original fucking ideas and yeah. they've become really big things. So it's, it's that fear of um, not in, allowing, I mean, it's just such a bizarre thing to me. The amount of probably interesting, great shit that studios and networks are missing out on because they're so focused on, you know, what article just got, you know, published in the Atlantic right. and what's coming out from, you know, this book publisher this month that we have people reading. Well, so, I, I always, I had a, I had a revelation about this a bunch of years ago. I was reading a paperback from when paperbacks were new in the late thirties, early forties. And it was pocket books, which was the first manufacturer of paperbacks. Mm -hmm. And I looked at the back of the book of everything they had, which had a list of everything they had in print. Every single one of them was made into a movie. Every book that was popular enough to be a paperback, I was like, the first one was Lost Horizon. Then it was, you know, Tale of Two Cities. <laughs> like, that even in the 1930s, Jack Warner was like, what's, you know, what, what's pocketbooks doing? Tale of Two Cities, of human bondage, great, get Tyrone Power. You know, like, that it, that it was that ABC. Mm -hmm. Like, this is popular, let's just give people things they already like. Well, I'm I sorry. think what, one of the things that, has always been the case, you know, you're going back to Jack Warner. Um, but it, it, it's always seemed to me to be true, even going back in, in the, the way back machine to the, to the early days of Hollywood is that Hollywood operates on fear. Mm -hmm. um, and people are afraid of making a decision or taking a risk that's going to get them fired. So an executive is much more likely to go, well, this worked on paperback or this worked in a comic book, or this was, video game somebody liked it somebody bought it already if i say we should make it i've got a leg to stand on because somebody made the decision the really difficult decision before me and right. took the fire on it so right. it's right. It, it's a it's a constant safety net for these guys who are not who, who are brought up in an executive culture that demands that they not be bold that they right. not take big swings well, look but at then they do things like Jupiter's Legacy, which got, I mean, you know, I was working on um, Magic Order, so I was in the Malar world, whatever, and, or, and, and, and uh, yeah, and then Jupiter's Legacy was happening sort of concurrent when I came in for the second writer's room on, on Magic Order, and that, that, that show didn't, did not obviously do well. The show was, was, sort of not great and a lot of execs got are gone from netflix because of that and uh so it's like it's not always that it's, it's no, also not and, that safe and also and also it's timing i wonder sometimes if jupiter's legacy had it come out before the boys and before invincible now it was it also was poorly done absolutely that was definitive yeah <laughs> it was it was definitely yeah, a bad I mean, thing. But also on yeah. top of being bad, it was the third revisionist superhero show. Yeah. I mean like in a we row. were that for a while. <laughs> you know, you like, know, I mean it's yeah. Tick was sort of the light heart, you know, right. silly poke fun of version versus the dark nihilistic, you know, side well, of what, it all. Um what Ben has but, always gotten right, yeah. and this is something that drives me crazy about I won't name names, but you know, Ben also worked on the first season of Venture Brothers. And one of the things that I love about Venture Brothers and The Tick, we were talking about how Overkill is the Punisher, but he's also Batman. You know, in the, in the I will name names, in the Family Guy universe, a, 
the reference itself is the joke. You make the reference that is expected to be funny in and of itself. There's a character in Venture Brothers who is Sean Connery, but he's also William Burroughs. There's a character who's Nick Fury, but he's also Hunter S. Thompson. Right. The references are more complicated and it's more original and it's more interesting than just, well, this guy is clearly Superman and that guy is clearly this guy and that guy. Like when the analogs are that dull, for want of a better word, I think it's harder because you're, you're, you're failing to create anything original. Everything about right. the chick has always been original. Batmanuel is original and Deflator Mouse is original, even as they are Batman pastiches. They are still original conceptions in a way that just making fun of Batman is not necessarily an original idea, you know? And that's the, harder to write. It's harder to be smart. Yeah. You know? I'm going to speak for the writer who spent six years on South Park and say that she has no comment on Family Guy. <laughs> <laughs> None. None. None at yeah. all. Yeah, it. Uh, I only yeah. speak as a viewer. <laughs> well, and then also, and also worked on a Seth MacFarlane executive produce like on Border Town, which was you know I learned I learned lessons hard on that show um, about you know sort of the difference between South Park and Family Guy, because the 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 people that were running the the person whose show it was who was lovely um, came from Family Guy, so the process came from the show process came from Family Guy and it was mm -hmm. so markedly different from South Park and, and just a very, uh, in, in that moment I could see, even though the person that created um, Border Town's a completely different person, he came up within that Family Guy sort of world. And just like Sam came from, um, Preacher came from Breaking Bad, so mm -hmm. he, he sort of took that process for his writer's room. So you could see that Family Guy was being moved over to Border Town and it was such a different, such a different world than than South Park. So it, that told me so much about who these two different, um, you know, Matt and Trey versus Seth were in terms of comedy and 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 what they were trying to do and what they were trying to say. And they're 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 hard to compare because they're apples and oranges because they're trying to do very different things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. South Park and and Family Guy, just completely very different things. And South Park does what I like better. I'm just saying. <laughs> just saying. That was yeah, more my no, thing. It's it's, uh, it's definitely a different process. The world being crazy. I I I was in. I didn't when when uh, the South Park creators became famous. I did not recognize them, but I had met them previously, and when they finally got around to re-releasing Cannibal the Musical, <laughs> and that was in the newspapers, I went, oh my god. Those two young guys I met at the Dresden Room and drank with all night who were in town to show Cannibal the Musical at New Art, that was Matt and Trey. Like, it was just one of those moments I was like, oh, I actually knew those guys for a minute, uh, a very long yeah. time ago, before, uh, before the South Park video started going around and uh, yeah. a splash. Yeah. Yeah. It is a crazy world. But, uh, but yeah, no, it's... Uh, it's interesting the the way writers' rooms can be so different from one another, and the culture of each room, how it gets set, and how it, you know, how that's the whole show basically mm -hmm. you know, that everybody is is keeping within that uh, that universe. 
Yeah, I mean, each of us, I mean, and Jose has done this too, we've been in a bunch of rooms, right? And in each one, I I mean, personally, I think you, you almost learn more of what not to be or what you don't want to do than you learn what to do sometimes. Yeah. And, that, and that's not saying that I haven't, I mean, I, you know, I haven't been with great showrunners or anything, but it's like you, you, you experience really good, you experience super shit. And then from that, it formulates who you are when, you know, and it, when it's your room and who you want to be or try to be, you know, a, when you're, when it's your show. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, you're, you're definitely a product of every bad shitty show running you've had. And, and if you're lucky, the good ones that you've had too. Well, I think, you, you can't know, help Javi, it. Javi points out in that uh, document, that great document he created about show running. Where yeah. You know, that people who get that job are not hired because they're great managers of other human beings. That is not that is not the thing that gets you the job. The thing that gets you the job. No, but it should definitely be a part of it because that is, you know, that is a huge part of it. You're the you're the captain of that ship and you're the CEO of that corporation and and part of that means being able to manage people. Mm -hmm. So and it's it's not always easy, but it's you should have at least have some humanity. <laughs> yeah, and also you should, you know, the, the humility of being someone who works alone in a room for years, and then suddenly you're the captain of a ship. You should maybe know that you have absolutely no training as the captain of a ship. You might be the smartest writer in the world, but a nice moment of self awareness is like, I've never done anything even remotely like this before. This is very different, and I should yeah. think about maybe how different this is and how badly that affects the people that I work with. I have so many thoughts about this. <laughs> well, yeah. you can share them. I think you and I have talked about this before, Jose. Feel, feel free to share them without saying any names. The, there are so many, you, you described the, you know, the writer who spends a lifetime by himself or herself just writing alone in a room and they may, may be the greatest writer in the world. Well, that's your problem right there. When you're when you're operating in a vacuum, there is a chance that you may come to think that you are the greatest writer in the world and that only you can can execute the vision of your very idiosyncratic show. And that to me means that you have no business working in television. Yeah. Um, and that to me is a big red flag that a studio should see easily yeah. Um, yeah. and go okay, this person's a great writer uh, and we believe in their vision, but they're going to forget the the quality of the show um, that they as a bank should go, that's going to cost us money. That person doesn't know what they're doing. They're going to cost us money. We need to come up with a creative solution so that this quote-unquote visionary doesn't fuck everything up. Uh, yeah because we're going to give them a hundred million dollars to make a show. Um, and they're going to waste God knows how much of that money um, learning the process rather mm -hmm. than us going and, to somebody yeah. who knows the process um, and empowering the person who knows the process and, and, and just coming up with a system that, because this keeps happening and has happened for God knows how long, but it happens more now than it did when I was starting out 20 years ago, um, where the keys to the kingdom are handed to people that don't have a fucking clue. 
um, and inevitably the result is the same. Um, and, and there are certain showrunner writers who, who keep shitting the bed in the exact same fashion and they still keep getting the keys handed to them. There's a couple people that I wish I was brazen enough to name the names, but there's people that I see in the trades. I'm like, Oh, well, here's, here's another train wreck in the offing. How does the studio not know this if I know this? Well, and you know who does know, uh, you know, my wife's a union costumer, and there are some showrunners who, like, she'll get offered to day play on something, and she's like, oh, no, 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 no. Those are always <laughs> a nightmare. Those are always poorly. Like, crews, no. Crews work on certain showrunner shows out of economic desperation, knowing that they're going to have a terrible time, that the right. thing is going to be a clusterfuck beginning, middle, and end. And it's always amazing. The 150 people who are in IATSE know that. And right. somehow the studio, the president of the studio doesn't know that. And doesn't know to I, hire I, someone yeah. to ride the guy. You know, It's highly, if you don't be in television, I mean, there, if you want to go right alone in a room, go be in features. But if you want to be in television, it's highly collaborative. And and in television, you're, you're just as much a producer as you are a writer at a, you know, once you hit a certain level. And so that means people, that means collaboration, that means listening, that means being able to change and pivot and, you know, embrace things. And a lot of people that have, that have been hired purely because they're, they're genius idea and think that there's some sort of, you know, incredible gift to the industry, you might be a fucking brilliant talent. You might be a once in a lifetime talent, but it's still um, a career and a profession and a craft and all those other things where you have to work with other human beings in order to be successful at it. And, and it's very difficult to take your vision from your brain and put it on a screen. It's even harder to do that when you won't listen to anybody else around you or work with anybody else around you. Yep. So, you know, it's, it really, and it wastes the student. And then they're like, I don't understand why they're not taking notes. And we gave them these notes. Why are they not listening to our notes? It's because they think like nobody knows, like you set that shit up. Why, a- why do you think they're not listening to your notes? So it's TV is, is for people that like people and want to collaborate features. And I'm not saying this for like across the boards, calling anybody that's in features, you know, anything, but, but it's like, you have a lot more autonomy in, in features, right? You like right. to sit a room, alone in a room and write. Have at it. Sure. But TV is 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 about wanting to work with other people who you know you're going to throw something out there and somebody else in that room is going to pick it up and make it better. Like right. that's what TV is about. Well, you know, I have this standard. I I don't know that I blame Andrew Saris. I think people misunderstood the auteur theory enormously and have basically grafted the great men of history theory onto the auteur theory. But the example I always use is that The Phantom Menace has one screenwriter and Fellini's Eight and a Half has five. The one that's considered the greatest art house film of all times, Fellini sat in a room with four guys. And when, how about it ends on a train? No, no, it ends in a circus ring. Like he listened to people and made one of the greatest films ever made. The act of not listening to people. And the worst thing is when they think you're a genius, people stop giving you the input. When you're working yeah. with Harrison Ford, who is your peer and knew you when you were nobody, he can tell you what he thinks is a better line of dialogue. When you're working with Daisy Ridley or when you're working with you know, Hayden Christensen, he's not gonna tell George Lucas, 
these are terrible lines of dialogue. I'm rewriting all of my stuff. Like Carrie Fisher rewrote half of her dialogue in the old George Lucas movies. And like Lucas would, but no one can do that to George Lucas anymore and they wouldn't even think to do it. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm sorry, I cut you yeah. off. No, I was saying, I was just adding to what you were saying. Like Lucas, if you, if you have read the stories of those first movies, he butted head, heads with Gary Kurtz, his producer, all the time. Yep. Um, because, you know, they they were equals. They were sort of partners in crime. And, of course, Lucas was a control freak even back then, and he wanted to do everything his way back then. Um, but, you know, he benefited from being forced to, to, to work with others. And, I, you know, I, I'm a little scared but a lot curious as to what – we're entering into now in the next uh, chapter of television because we are, Susan, you were talking about uh, how when you get to a certain level of being a TV writer, you're also a producer. That's starting to go away. Um, and more and more writers are hired just to write. And the showrunner is the only actual producer who's going to be there on set. Uh, yeah. Which covering, is rewriting cool. the scripts and covering all the episodes. Uh, and sometimes handing those reins to to a director, um, and I, I for one, um, worry uh, about what uh, what that's going to do to the future of writer producers. You know, you're going to wind up with more and more writers who are selling yeah. shows that have never been on a set, mm -hmm. uh, don't know how to cut an episode, that don't know how to tone a director during prep. Uh, it's yep. it's only going to be, um, you know, again, forget the creative side of it. It's only going to be another waste of studio money. And you're not, the all the money that they're putting into the shows, uh, you're not going to see on your screen because it's going to be money that goes into the toilet because of um, bad management. It goes yeah, in, I mean, in COVID, it it has made that... For somebody. Well, you know, COVID has made that, I think has accelerated that because there's a lot of rooms now that are like, it's just not safe to have somebody come, everybody come for their episode, right? If you're shooting out of town, I mean, if you're here in LA, it's a little different, but if it's like your show's shooting in New York, or your show's shooting in you know, Preacher, we were in Australia, you know? So it's like, it, it, it's, it doesn't, you know, a lot of shows now, especially for streamers are like, we're going to do the room because it's always, always used to be, it's concurrent, right? It's like you write for a while and then production kicks in while you're still writing. Right. And it, it just becomes this clusterfuck of crazy that's awesome. And, but now it's like, we're gonna, we're gonna do the room, get all the scripts and then we're gonna start production. And in that case, it's gonna be the showrunner and maybe one other um, co-EP or, you know, the number two on the show who are gonna go for production and, and those younger, writers who need to learn this to come up behind Jose and I to take the reins into, you know, or the future of our industry, these younger writers aren't going to get the skills they need to do mm -hmm. it. And therefore, as Jose is, you know, afraid of, and I am too, that because they don't have those skills because they weren't allowed to learn them, now they're going to find a way to cut people out so they never get those opportunities. It's not going to be something that that is what they is part of the job description anymore. Well, and, and also keeping writing while you're in production is so necessary to reacting to what's being filmed. 
You can yeah. write a yeah. character and assume that character is a certain way. Then someone comes along and plays it another way that's great. And yep. you can adjust this. Look at Star Trek. Because it was airing while they were writing, six episodes in, they're able to go, more Mr. Spock. Got it. <laughs> like, you know, Ilya Kuryakin is definitely a third string character in the first couple of episodes of Man from Uncle. And then they read some letters and went, no, he's the co-star. He should be in every scene Robert Vaughn it is in. This is not just about <clears throat> Robert Vaughn and some dudes. This is a two, this is now a two-hander. If they had got the whole season, that whole first season in the can, McCallum would have been handing files to Robert Vaughn for 20 episodes. And there would have been no way to adapt to the teeny bopper love of McCallum <laughs> and make him the co-star of the show. You know, what I, right. they would have had to wait well, until I the season. You know, we were talking about uh, Kevin can fuck himself. I, I don't know how they produced that show, but it seems to me that that it was, uh, you know, one of those because it's a premium cable outlet where they had all the scripts and then they shot all the episodes. I wonder if that's a show that would have benefited from what you're describing because I think it's pretty obvious that the sitcom stuff gets old pretty quickly. And I, I feel like if they had been shooting and putting and assembling the episodes, they could have gone, you know what, less of this, more of that. Yeah, the audience has got this joke now. We don't need right. to keep doing this. No, but funny thing, I was just listening before we started talking to an interview with the showrunner, and she was saying she loves those scenes. She's like, I know how horrible he is. I know how horrible it is that we're like making this. She's like, we intend that to be a good version of one of those sitcoms. And I'm like, it's it's still horrible. He's horrible. The people are horrible. It's almost unwatchable. Yeah. yeah. But she I, loves I, it I, because I, she's making it. You know, I get yeah. that. I, I, I mean, I, with WandaVision, I, I had a very similar experience to you where it was like, if I want to watch these old, I mean, I like the homage. I liked it at first. It was fun. And then I was like, I need this to start branching out into what, yeah. what's go really going on here sooner because just watching, and those weren't even particularly nothing. I mean, they're all so well done, but it's like even the best bewitch is still not, yeah. you know, it's still not something you, it's hard. Yeah. They're hard to sit through nowadays. That humor, that pacing, that, whatever the that that type of humor is is hard for modern ears yeah. and so to play on that i get it and they did a great job of capturing that but it's it still made it for me who doesn't love to watch all those old sitcoms um it made it it, it was, was it's an un, it's an uneasy watch and i think partially it that was, was hard for me but it's until it started it, growing yeah I feel like it, on that it, one, it, it went on I feel like, like on that one, they pulled the plug on the yeah. pastiches just in time to keep me watching the show. Like they yes. just like there was just too much. There was just enough of too much to make yeah. a hash of a sentence. Where just when I was like, okay, I I don't know if I can stand another minute of this. Boom, Jimmy Woo and the Agents of Shield and all that. Like okay, yeah. right, well, yeah, I mean, almost for, lost. For, for, yeah, for my wife and I, I think we watched. We watched two, two and a half episodes, and we were like, God, you know, wh when is this going somewhere? And I think we stopped watching, and it was yeah. friends of ours being like, you got to hang in there, you got to hang in there, you know what I'm saying? And, 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 you know, and then shortly after that, it picks back up, and like you said, it gets really interesting. But, yeah, I mean, yeah. That, that, that's it's a really interesting study. It's like, um, I mean, we actually yeah. stopped watching it. And so if we yeah. weren't in, like, the information age, we weren't seeing our friends on Twitter being like, oh, episode 
five, you know, oh, episode yeah. six. Like, I, ne know, I never want to hear about a show. You need to hang, you need to hang on. Like, yeah. no, like, I don't, don't yeah, make the my audience have to go, just say, wait like, till episode six and you're going to yeah. super love it. It's like, yeah. no, I think my job in television yeah. is to like, if I'm not going to get you with the pilot, because pilots are fucking hard and sure. they get so scrutinized in a way that yeah. nothing else does. But if you don't get somebody by the end of the second episode, then yeah. I haven't. I don't feel like I've I've necessarily done my job. And and I get that Wandavision was was doing something very unique and very different and and whatever. But my my taste level and is that I I I don't that that sitcom humor hurts me. Oh, me too. Even when I worked on that kind of <laughs> me sitcom, too. it hurt it, me. It's painful for me to watch. <laughs> I had the experience recently because of the stuff showing up in Mandalorian. I finally decided to go back and watch the Clone Wars. And holy shit, that first season is a steep mountain to climb. The last two seasons are brilliant, I think. They're real, they're as good as any Star Wars ever. But the first season is like Dave Filoni goes to writing school and oof. <laughs> it is it is it is some hard stuff to get through. And uh again, it pays off. But my wife was like, We're gonna stop watching these now, right? I'm like, no, I yeah. people assure me that these go a great place eventually. She's like, oh, yeah. Well, the first couple How of seasons are, are we completely, they're completely episodic, right? The first couple of seasons. There's well, the no worst, the, the worst thing, and I actually found something online that solved this a little bit, was the original conception was that it was an anthology show. So the episodes as aired are chronologically out of order and jump around the timeline a little bit. And I literally, on StarWars.com, there's a list of like how to watch the Clone Wars in chronological order. And I literally found that and we watched them in order. And like I said, the last moment of the last episode is as good as anything I've ever enjoyed on television. But holy shit, what he put me through to get there was... Uh, you know, had I not been assured by many people over and over again, and also the fact that all of the characters, because he's in charge of televised Star Wars now, you're just going to be seeing characters from the Clone Wars left and right <laughs> in The Mandalorian, in The Book of Boba Fett. Like, all of them are coming back, so you might as well get used to them. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I think the biggest, the, the craziest one for me was Walking Dead, because I think I, I think I tried to watch it, like, probably three times before uh, before I it kind of really uh, hung with me. And my friends would say, no, seriously, just wait until, you know, th the last episode of the second season. Wow. You know, it's like, it's like really? <laughs> Can I start hours. there? Really? Can I just yeah. start there maybe? Uh, yeah. Okay. yeah, I, uh, and and I went the other way. I The lot Walking Dead got progressively less than me as it went on. I was like, this started out as kind of a science fiction show and now it's, it might as well be, you like cowboys and Indians. Like it's just a faceless horde of people that were okay with killing over and over and over and over again. And there's no science fiction. There's no storytelling. It's just brutality for an hour. Then, and I just, yeah, th th that said, I really love that one episode where they just kind of wander through the woods for an hour. That one was great. <laughs> yeah, that really, yeah. that really it's a unique episode. Yeah. yeah. You, yeah. you remember that one? Yeah. 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 It was, just yeah, one. It was yeah, very good. <laughs> that one is just yeah. It's uh, at some point. At some point, Ryland, they do stop and they look at flowers, and that one's really good. Oh yeah, they do yeah, farm. Yeah. They do farm every now and then too. Yeah, There's some farming happening. Ryland has heard me talk about this before, but my favorite genre, going back to the TV Guide days, is the synopsis written by someone who was not told what episode was airing. 
So it's Star Trek, 6 p.m., Channel 11. Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock run into trouble on an alien planet. Oh, <laughs> that one. I love that. One. That is really my favorite one. Or the X-Files one you would see every once in a while was like Scully and Mulder and investigate a mystery in the Midwest. Oh, sure. Yep. I enjoy that. Very, very it's a like, good episode. You got a you got a ninety percent ch chance that that actually is a reflection of the episode involved. Well, we should wrap up. We've kept you long enough, but we like to end usually by asking people what they're working on, what they got coming next, and where people can find them if they want to on the internets. Jose, uh, I am about to start work on uh, CW's legacies. Um, I just uh, closed will, uh, literally while we were sitting here, I got an email oh, from Malaya oh, saying, great. saying you can see your excitement well. <laughs> so yeah, so I'll be starting that gig in uh, I think two weeks from yesterday. Nice. Uh, developing my own stuff, uh, you know, as as I go, as you know, as Warner Brothers will allow me. Uh, and you can find me on the Twitter at Jose Molina TV, as in Jose Molina Television. Um, and I'm on Instagram under the same handle, but I always forget that I'm on Instagram. So I'm hardly ever there. And you have that great Instagram podcast. pictures of my cat. You have that great podcast for writers, uh, Children yeah. of Tendu. Where Children can of Tendu. Uh, you can go uh, to Children of Tendu on Twitter, at Children of Tendu, and that's T-E-N-D-U. It's a podcast all about the nuts and bolts of the television business that I host with uh, with the aforementioned Javier Guido Mark Swatch. Um, and uh, yeah, and uh, if you're the the Twitter will lead you to the link where you can download them. But if you just Google Children of Tendu, that'll it'll come up. I recommend uh, it very highly for all interested parties. I think anyone who listens to this podcast would be interested in that podcast. Thank you. Yeah, we've been doing yeah, it definitely. for seven years now. Right. Right. Crazy. And Susan, what have you got coming up, and where can people find you? Oh my God. Uh, I have a bunch of stuff I can't really talk about because I have deals working. Uh, I'm going to be writing a feature, uh, deals working. I, I'm doing mostly development right now. I'm, uh, I have been working for the past year with Sony Animation for um, a TV show based on Anthony Bourdain's Hungry Ghosts comic series. That's fascinating. Um, which yeah. is really cool, which is, you Incredible. know, horror and animation, which is just a great fucking cool and cooking because I have a culinary degree. People don't know that. So it sort of <laughs> blends all these really cool things for me. I have, nice. um, I'm up for a showrunner gig on a job for Netflix that I can't talk about. And then I have a show that I'm developing uh, with Sony television that hasn't closed yet for, uh, for another project. So I have a bunch of like stuff, but nothing like I'm not walking into a room like Jose is, which, you know, Jealous, and, but because uh, I love being Twitter rooms, handle but, uh, at Bat Dork Girl. Well, if you were like curious about, is she a fan of Batman? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, literally, it's in the Twitter handle. That would be and, uh, the, 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 the tattoo was not enough, but yeah, um, yeah. <clears throat> I am at Ryland Grant on all forms of social media. That is R Y L E N D G R A N T for the people that are listening. Um, I always spell it because it's not a real name. My parents drunkenly arranged letters and saddled me with it, and now I have to spell it for you. 
Um, so that is that. Uh, my uh, my comics, the Ringo Award-winning Aberrants and the four-time Ringo-nominated Banjax are available in fine comic shops everywhere and via Amazon and Comixology and fancy places like that. Um, and my latest and greatest, a tokusatsu joint called Suicide Jockeys, is available for pre-order right now. Go to your local comic shop and put that on your pull list. Um, my Kickstarter books, uh, The Jump, and the Fargo West crime drama, The Peacekeepers, are available uh, via backer kit right now. If you go to The Jump 2, uh, The Jump, all one word, and uh, the number two, uh, not too spelled out, thejump2.backerkit.com. You can find all that stuff and um, uh, plenty of books signed by me, copies of Aberrant Banjax, the whole nine yards. Um, yeah, movie TV-wise, uh, um, we somehow got a, a, a film shot uh, over this pandemic that is, I believe, set to premiere at the Venice Film Festival in October, so that's pretty cool. Uh, found out last week that um, the next film, which is actually the first film I was ever paid to write in, uh, in Hollywood, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, 15 years ago, um, is, uh, is, is shooting um, uh, next spring in, uh, in Greece. Um, cool. That's a long some... development. It is a long yeah. development. Okay, yeah, features, it, man. Yeah, that, that, we could do an episode on that. Uh, that was a, a roller coaster ride, but um, uh, same director, you know, different actors now. Um, but but it is, uh, you know, it is it is going. Um, I was supposed to, you know, I was supposed to be in Italy. The the last film was shot in Italy. I was supposed to be in Italy for it, but then COVID happens and Italy got hit harder than anybody, so I had to stay here. Uh, I am set to go to uh, 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 Greece for this one, uh, nice. barring cool. you know, barring a, another pandemic or an asteroid strike or something like that. So, barring so, the Delta so, variant. What's the title of the Emil Hirsch movie? Uh, it's called State of Consciousness. It's a kind of a, a you know crazy uh, uh, paranoid thriller, sci-fi mindfuck. It's uh, it's pretty it's it's pretty awesome. I'm I'm happy with it. So uh, nice. it's looking good. It's sounding good. So um, so check it out. Yeah. Nice. And I can, the easiest thing is I have a website, you know, like an old man, uh, .com. Uh That branches off to all <laughs> of the various things like Comixology and my comics on Amazon and my Twitter, if you want to see me be rude to people um, and, uh, and interact with lovely people like Susan and Jose. Uh, thank you for joining us on the show. It was really great having Thanks you. Thanks for having us. It was fun. And uh, we'll see you all on the next exciting episode. Thanks right. for listening. All right. Bye, guys. If you're watching us on YouTube, be sure to smash that like button. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or other fine purveyors of ear crack, please leave us a five-star review. And wherever you're watching and or listening, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. We'll see you back here next week for more Madcap Hijinks on the Writer's Block. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.